Good morning. Uh, please open up your Bibles, the book of Jonah. Most of us know the story. Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember that the nation of Israel is going through a rebellious period. They're meant to be a nation set apart for the one true and living God, but now they're worshiping many gods, gods invented by their surrounding countries. And Jonah is initially called as a prophet of God to preach to his own people. That's his job. But then one day, God calls Jonah to preach to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians are the enemies. The Assyrians are a brutal, barbaric people that harass and attack the Israelites. They are a terrorist threat to the nation of Israel. And Jonah would rather see the city of Nineveh burn to the ground in judgment than to see it become a city burning with a passion for God. Basically, Jonah is happy to serve in the office of the prophet of God until it's inconvenient for him. And so God tells Jonah to reveal his heart. But Jonah hatches a plan. He gets on a boat that's heading in the opposite direction to run away. He's easily the worst missionary who ever lived. But we see God continue to test Jonah. Right? So instead of letting the ship get to its destination, God sends a massive storm that threatens to break apart the ship. And as the storm gets worse and worse, we see Jonah's spiritual state get worse and worse. And this spiritual decline, this moral decline, is revealed in chapter 1 through Jonah's actions on the boat and also his interactions with his fellow passengers. Jonah is tested to the brink, his will or God's will. And stubbornly, he chooses his will. And this whole ordeal in chapter 1 of the book of Jonah culminates when Jonah reveals that he would rather die than to submit to God's will. At the climax of the story, Jonah's decision reveals basically the human condition, how helplessly we love our sin. So he convinces the mariners who are there on the boat with him to throw him off to stop the winds. But they, by the way, resist. They try to fight it. They try to row to safety. They risk their lives to try and save Jonah, the reason that the storm is happening in the first place. And when all their options are exhausted, and when the storm gets worse, they beg God for mercy as they throw the prophet off into the sea. Then the storm suddenly goes away. Remember, they knew that the storm was supernatural. And this is confirmed the moment that they throw Jonah off the boat and the storm quickly stops. The waves are calmed. And immediately, the sailors repent and they turn to God. The sailors are saved despite Jonah's rebellion, despite his failing God's test. And now what happens next is the most well-known part of Jonah, the fish. But one of the most interesting parts about Jonah is that in the Hebrew Bible, the chapter ends at this point in the story, before we get to the fish. In the Hebrew Bible, there is a pause the audience does not know what happened to Jonah. He was left for dead. And all the author really wants the readers to know is that God is in control and that the pagan sailors saw what happened, saw the effects of sin, saw, the, saw judgment against that sin by the almighty Jehovah God and were saved and seen. Intermission. And it's after we meditate on that, we read what's in our Bible as chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. <clears throat> now, there's been a lot of discussion about the fish, so I do want to take a brief moment to talk about this verse. 
but I do, but I want to spend the majority of our time together this morning focusing on chapter two. So the first thing about the fish is the fish itself. Although a lot of paintings and writings depict Jonah as being swallowed by a whale like Pinocchio, the Hebrew text defines the animal as a big fish. So for the purpose of this morning, we'll refer to it as a fish. And if we refer to it as a fish, there naturally is a debate on the plausibility of Jonah's surviving in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Can a grown man fit into a fish? Can he breathe and survive? How big was this fish? How short was Jonah? And what people have done to answer this question is come up with several instances in history where, for example, someone may have found themselves in a fish and survived. I don't want to be dismissive at all about these attempts to use these stories to prove this story's plausibility. But I just don't think that Jonah and whether he could or couldn't survive in a fish is the hardest thing to believe when this part of the narrative starts with, and the Lord appointed a great fish in verse 17. It was the Lord who appointed the great fish. The Lord who spoke the world into existence. The Lord who made the largest river in the world flow with blood. The Lord who made a donkey speak. So it's another amazing miracle by a great and amazing creator God, regardless if it were repeated in history. So this leads us to the second point on the fish, the purpose of the fish. The fish just happened to be the means by which God chose to arrest Jonah. In chapter 2, we will see that he was drowning. He felt his lungs fill with water. He was sinking. And somewhere as he got to the bottom of the sea, he cried out for God. And then God sent the fish. That's what God used to pick Jonah up. It was God's Uber. That's it. But as a side note, it's also interesting that some of the deepest and darkest stories in the Bible happen to be more of the popular and well-known stories that we teach to our kids. Noah's Ark is a story about God's judgment against the whole earth and its decision to wipe mankind off the face of the earth. But when we think of Noah's Ark, we think of animals poking their heads out of a boat on a clear day with a rainbow in the back. Egypt and the Ten Plagues is a story about God sending judgment after judgment against an entire nation that reaches its climax when the angel of death kills the firstborn son of every single Egyptian household. And the Red Sea that splits for the Israelites, but crushes and drowns the Egyptian infantry, which, by the way, were made up of men who had just lost their firstborn son and or their brothers. But people know the details of the story through a kid's movie rated PG. And this morning, Jonah and the Fish is a story about a prophet who defects from his creator God and goes into a state of steep, dark spiritual decline and is thrown to his death before being preserved inside the belly of a fish in the 11th hour. And this narrative happens to have the most variations of kids' Bible songs. But perhaps this is a natural way for us to avoid thinking about what sin ultimately brings. The book of Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And yet we're too fixated on the animals in Noah's ark and the size of the ark and how the entire animal kingdom could have fit into the ark. We're too fixated on the splitting of the Red Sea in Exodus, whether it was a different sea or not. We're too fixated on the fish in the story of Jonah that we lose focus on the hero of all of these stories, 
who is God. And we lose sight of his mission, which is to rescue his people. So this morning, before we get into the sermon, this is still the introduction, I want to challenge you to refocus your eyes on God's glorious and wonderful and decisive deliverance against the evils of sin. The fish is a means of God's deliverance. That's what it ultimately is, which leads us to Jonah and where we find him in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah is swallowed by a fish and Jonah prays a beautiful prayer. And in this prayer, we can identify seven habits that sinners exhibit when God grants them repentance. Back in January, in chapter 1, we explored the seven habits of highly unrepentant people. This morning, we will look at the seven habits of highly repentant people. But before we do that, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you once again for who you are. Lord, not us, but who you are, for you saw us in our sinful state And you did something about it to rescue us. And God, we just ask that this worship service will not be in vain, will not be the motions that we go through, but that you would do a work in us by your presence. God, would we have nowhere else to run but to you? God, would you convict us this morning? Would you cause us to change this morning? And would we not forget that which you have prepared as we leave the doors of this building? God, if I have anything wrong in me that I say out loud, Lord, would it be forgotten immediately? And would your truth and your glorious truth do a work in those who do not know you and those who have known you but harden their heart and those who do know you and love you and walk with you? And yet, would they be refreshed by the truth that never changes and is from you? From your son's holy name, we pray. Amen. Jonah chapter 2. Please open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. Now I'll read Jonah in its entirety, Jonah 2 in its entirety. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Okay, so, habit number one, highly repentant people pray to God. They pray to God. This point sounds obvious, but sometimes praying is enough. Jonah is like the prodigal son here. If chapter 1 showed Jonah running from the father in blatant and outright sin, chapter 2 is his coming back. It's his U-turn, his turning around, confessing that he was wrong, and coming back because he realizes he really has nowhere else to go. And step 1 in repentance is to pray. Chapter 2 starts off in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. 
Jonah initially refused to pray for his life, right? When everybody was running around screaming, throwing their valuables out into the sea and praying to all of their gods, Jonah decided to go to sleep in the bottom of the deck of the boat. Even though he was the only one that knew God actually hears and listens to prayer, he was literally the only one in the boat that was not praying. This is a man who is spiritually rotting, spiritually inactive. But God brings a spiritually dead man alive to pray. God brings Jonah to realize his own wretchedness and is left with nothing but to pray. And prayer is what marks a repentant person. Unrepentant people not only refuse to pray, but they seem unable to pray. Whether they realize that they are in the eye of the storm of God's judgment because of their sin, they refuse to truly bow the knee to pray. Whether they feel terror about their sin in their hearts or not, they might express fear, they might express sadness, but they just don't pray. And prayer is the hallmark is the first step, is the most obvious sign of one who is repentant. The Apostle Paul, before his conversion, would go from house to house, dragging out Christians into the streets and send them to prison to await their death. This is what he committed himself to almost on a full-time basis. And one night, while Paul, also known as Saul, is on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians, most of you know the story, Jesus stops him. Jesus stops Paul with a bright supernatural light from heaven. Saul stopped in his tracks. He is blinded, and then he's dramatically converted. And when he's converted, Jesus tells him to wait for instructions. So while Saul is waiting, he is still blinded, and he is fasting. Meanwhile, God calls on another Christian, Ananias, and tells him to minister to Saul. And Ananias knows about Saul, right? All the Christians of the persecuted church, they know about Saul. He knows him as the persecutor of the church. But here's the reason that God gives to Ananias as to why he should visit him, why Ananias should visit Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 11. Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. What is the hallmark of someone who is repentant? Prayer. How do we know that Saul is now on our team? For he is praying. How do we know Jonah's spirit is revived? He is praying. Because prayer realigns our spiritual eyes to God. It's been so used to the darkness that prayer forces us to stop looking at our own sin, but to look to God. Habit number one, highly repentant people pray to God. Habit number two, highly repentant people treasure the word of God. They treasure the word of God. So consider first the content of Jonah's prayer. If you take just the prayer of Jonah, so verses two through nine in chapter two, and you show it to the person sitting next to you and ask, where is this passage from? Most people will say, I'm not, not exactly sure where, but it's definitely in the book of Psalms. And it's not just because the prayer in and of itself is beautiful. It is. But it's also that Jonah quotes different songs throughout the Bible. He is quoting scripture here. For example, Psalm 18:6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Or Psalm 42, 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. 
Jonah chapter 2, verse 3 takes us literally. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. The language of this prayer is also similar to Moses' song in Exodus 15, right after God delivers the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. Exodus chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. There are plenty of examples, but the point is that there just aren't many words here in chapter 2 that are original to Jonah. Where before Jonah hardened his heart and numbed himself to the truth, Jonah now can't help but speak truth and be compelled by it. He's comforted by it and uses it to express the deepest corners of his heart. And not only is Jonah speaking the word of God, he is trusting it. Verse 4, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 7, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. The reason that Jonah continues to bring up and mention holy temple, holy temple, is because Jonah knew that in the entire universe of all things created, the temple is where God has said he will make his promise known. In the Old Testament, the only place in the world where people can atone for their sins against the holy God is at the temple. There was no other place where God's wrath against sin was satisfied and made known to the people of the earth than the temple. So Jonah remembers this and clings to this and trusts this. He is aware of the word of God and looks to it to find his hope. And this is true for people who are repentant. Repentant people require the word of God. They have an insatiable hunger for it. They can't help but to speak it, to hear it, to devour it, and then to cling to it. For most of church history, true Holy Spirit-led, unplanned revivals have been quote-unquote led by non-celebrities who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach. For all of church history, the people didn't require much of the preacher. They simply wanted to hear the word of God from godly and competent preachers because highly repentant people treasure the word of God. I mean, think about the moment you were first saved. Think about the time that the gospel actually made sense to you and how you could just not quench your thirst for the word of God, right? How beautiful it was, how sweet it was. And for most of you here, including myself, look at you now. Look at us now. Is it stale? Is it something that we just drown out? Is it something that we kind of turn off a part of our brains because we just don't get excited about it anymore? Repentant people simply want to hear the word of God. They love the word of God. Do you love the word of God? They love to read the word of God. And they want to be taught the word of God. They seek it. And they seek it desperately. And we see Jonah here treasuring the word of God. Because habit number two, highly repentant people treasure the word of God. Habit number three, highly repentant people Acknowledge their separation from God. Verse 2 says, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. Sheol is a complex doctrine in the Old Testament. There are many facets to it. And while we won't get into the details this morning, Sheol is just never a place where anybody wants to go. Right? It's darkness. It's the house of the dead. 
But when Jonah is talking about crying out from the belly of Sheol, he is referring to Sheol being the lowest point that he could be, the farthest from God he could be, geographically, spiritually, emotionally, everything. Job refers to this position as well, as well in Job chapter 26 when he talks about Sheol being at the bottom of the ocean, the bottom of the earth. So if you can imagine, the Yahweh God is at the highest point and on the completely opposite end is Jonah in the belly of Sheol. He is abandoned. He is alone. And so with this imagery, we can actually feel the desperation of Jonah cry out from the bottom of the sea to the highest point in the heavens, calling out to God. And Jonah invokes a covenant name for God. I called out to the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. This is the desperation of the prodigal son in Luke 15. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Or the Canaanite woman seeking healing for her daughter who begged that though she was not an Israelite in Matthew chapter 15, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Or the same desperation that causes Psalms to cry in Psalm 84.10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Repentant people cannot bear their separation from God. Not only do they acknowledge it, but they cannot bear their separation from God. Continue in verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. Not the sailors who physically threw him in. For you cast me into the deep. All your waves and your billows passed over me. These are all physical things that have happened to Jonah. Jonah was chucked into the sea. But the only thing he can think about is the separation from God his relationship with God. He's desperate for God. He is dying. And the only thing he's worried about is not his own life, but his relationship with God. Verse four, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. That's his first response. Jonah realizes how far he's gone, how he's in too deep. And his only concern is that he is driven away from the sight of God. When David, King David, is found out for hiding his sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. He cries out in Psalm 51:11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why? Because we will never repent if we don't realize how far we've gone from God. If we focus on how our other circumstances are or how bad anything else might seem, but then fail to see how far we've gone from being aligned to our father, our, the heart of God, we will never truly know our need to repent and to return. This, by the way, is exactly what Jesus prescribes to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember how far you're separated from him. Remember how close you used to be to him. And now look at where you are. Because that alone should cause you to repent. If you've ever tasted the Lord before, think about how far you are from him. That should cause you to turn around and return. Highly repentant people acknowledge their separation from God. Which leads us to habit number four. Highly repentant people accuse themselves before God. 
in the prayer, there is real justification for what God has done, right? Jonah goes through all these cascading events of judgment and pain, but Jonah is only concerned about his relationship with God because he sees that he deserves it. There's no one left to blame. He's brought this on himself. Remember how this prayer is also similar to Moses' song in Exodus 15, right? Exodus 15, by the way, is a national anthem for Israel. It's the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air. It's the proof through the night that our flag was still there. But Jonah, the nationalist, the racist that he, the racist that he was to confine the glory of God to Israel only, sees himself not as an Israelite in this prayer when he's paraphrasing it, but as an Egyptian. Exodus chapter 15, verse 4 and 5, again, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. He replaces what God has done to Pharaoh and his army and says, you did the same thing to me. He certainly knows and acknowledges Pharaoh deserved it. Here, he says, I also deserved it. Unrepentant people make excuses for their sin. King Saul, when he spares the livestock of the Amalekites for himself in 1 Samuel 15, verse 24, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord because I fear the people. He blames the people. He excuses his sin. Translation, I'm sorry. I sinned. I messed up. But it's not his heart that's the issue. It's everything else, not him. On the contrary, repentant people don't make excuses for their sin. Even when the prodigal son is coming back home and is kissed by the father, Clearly forgiven, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. David, who when confronted for his sins by Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, says, I have sinned against the Lord, period, full stop. Because to confess it and give no excuse means that you stand alone, completely guilty. It means you cannot blame anything else. It means, that, it means, God, don't look at anything else. I'm the one that sinned. It's to acknowledge like the thief on the cross, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And when we confess without excuses, that's when God does a work in us. So we see Jonah's heart changing. Highly repentant people accuse themselves before God. Habit number five, highly repentant people see through the perspective of God. They see through the perspective of God. We see this in how Jonah views others now. Verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah here says that when people turn to their idols or when they continue to live in their sin, they're willfully giving up or forfeiting the mercy of God. They're trading the chance for ultimate joy in exchange for useless, temporary, self-glorifying, but self-destructive pleasures. By the way, this is an echo of another psalm, Psalm 31. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. And so the steadfast love of God is primarily his deliverance. 
And Jonah is thinking about others with regards to this. First, he thinks about the sailors. Flashback to Jonah in chapter 1. He's standing on the boat as it's pouring down on the deck. The ship is rocking back and forth because of the winds. And the pagan sailors are gripping on the sides of the boat to gain footing. And they are yelling. They're looking up into the sky and crying out to their gods. Yet Jonah, he's woken up. He's on top of the deck, refusing to pray. And he's looking at all of this and thinking about how foolish they look. They aren't even really sure which of their gods they should be praying to. They're just throwing the dice on all of them. Israel was meant to be monotheistic in a polytheistic world. Salvation belonged to Israel and only Israel. But now, instead of judging, Jonah realized that they were getting farther from the Lord, farther from salvation. He's seeing how God saw the pagan sailors before he saved them. Furthermore, he is also thinking about his own people, the people of Israel. He's thinking about the people that he actually loves. Remember, Israel is an idolatrous nation, paying regard to the idols of foreigners. This is an indictment to his own people. It's one thing as a preacher to preach the truth to a people, and it's a completely different thing to see the people and preach seeing through the perspective of God. So naturally, when the repentant person sees the world, they will have a desire to evangelize as they will see the world like God sees the world. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jonah had no compassion for the people of Nineveh. Jonah had no compassion for the pagan sailors. And yet now Jonah is considering the people who are unsaved. Highly repentant people see through the perspective of God. Habit six, highly repentant people welcome the discipline of God. They welcome the discipline of God. Jonah also confesses his own regard for idols. Jonah has realized that running toward his own desires meant forsaking God. So verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. This sort of a confession. He regarded his thoughts about his ministry over God's thoughts about his ministry. And then he was thrown into the sea. He nearly drowned. He went through much pain and anguish. And yet instead of being bitter, he shouts thanksgiving. And he's not saying, thank you for putting me through this. Thank you for making me suffer. But thank you, God, for the fruit of this. Because now he is rededicating himself to the work of God. Sometimes we know his discipline in theory. But we also need to be trained by it in practice. And Jonah has gone through serious training. Soren Kierkegaard once said, life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced. Repentant people quickly realize that the storms that God sends to his children are ones meant to fortify us. We are inclined towards sin and our own selfishness, not God's purpose. And so the discipline of God ultimately is not meant to change behavior, but the heart. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. I mean, think about it. If I saw my child surrounded by fire and trying to play with it, is it not right, is it not right for me to snatch him out of it, to keep him away from it because the real thing's worse? 
Likewise, if I see my own child caught in sin, would I not immediately snatch him out of it and discipline him to stay away? I would explain to him that the reason I discipline is first because I have to obey God and second because I love him, my child, and I just want to see him happy more than anything else. So by doing that, not only would he make an enemy of that sin, but also be motivated in his heart not to go back to it. If he's stuck in sin, which brings sadness and damnation, no matter how cute he might be about it, no matter how weird it might make him to his friends, does it make sense for me to let him continue? Alternatively, just being completely honest, if I saw another random kid in the street caught in sin, would I be compelled to the same extent to change his heart more than his behavior? No, if I see kids cursing in the playground with, with my kids, in that situation, I just want the behavior to stop. Comparatively, I'd be less concerned about his heart in that moment. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And God's, God's in the same way. We either belong to him or we belong to the devil. The devil by way of being brought under the same punishment as him and believing in his lies. But God will discipline those he loves. In fact, I'd be very concerned this morning if you've been sitting here and listening to the sermon and you know that you do not know God or you know that you are in deep habitual sin and yet you exhibit none of these habits. Honestly, I'd seriously take the time to consider that it's not God's approval of your sin that he's not disciplining you, but that it's in fact his disapproval of you that he hasn't chastened you for indulging in the very things that he sent his one and only beloved son to be crucified for. When God's discipline comes, people can choose to simply endure the suffering to hold on to their sin. That's what Jonah did in chapter one. But highly repentant people welcome the discipline of God. This is what turned the apostle Peter from, I do not know Jesus in fear of persecution to, I know Jesus and do not deserve to die like him in the face of persecution. Jonah needed to be fitted for what God was about to do with him in Nineveh. His hard heart, like steel, needed to be put to the fire to make it malleable to be suitable for God. And we will see this painful process yield unbelievable fruit in chapter 3. Highly repentant people welcome the discipline of God. Which finally brings us to habit number 7. Highly repentant people Give praise to God. Verse 9 and 10. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pray. I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Jonah ends his prayer with celebration. Jonah's exclamation at the end echoes David's psalms. For example, in Psalm 51, the Psalm of Repentance, verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Repentant people don't stay feeling bad about their sin. They confess their sin. They feel shame over their sin. 
and they forsake their sin. But then they cling to God because they learn of salvation. They don't feel sadness over their scars after they've healed, but they see them as warning signs to never come back. Why? Because when it is the salvation of the Lord, salvation is complete. Remember David's confession in 2 Samuel 12, we just talked about this. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. But the next verse immediately reads, Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. The entire first half of Jonah is a beautiful picture of salvation. Jonah runs at full speed into death through his sin. There is warning after warning, but he refuses and continues to sprint. Then he is near dead. Weeds are wrapped around his head, dragging him down. He's gone, helpless. He's in Sheol. And God, from the opposite side of the universe, infinitely far from his state, reaches down and pulls him back up. And like Jonah, we were once so deep, but God pulls us up. Like Jonah, we were once cast out, but God brings us in. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Because while Jonah got himself into trouble, Christ accepted God's wrath to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. And I know that if you've been coming here more than one Sunday, this is the part where you decide to turn your brain off a little bit, right? You decide to harden your heart and you decide to say, you know this, but let it sink in. Because just as Jonah was thrown into the sea and left for dead, Jesus, God Almighty, was thrown onto the cross and murdered by our sins. And while Jonah cried out in deep distress from the bottom of the ocean, Jesus cried out to God in unimaginable anguish from the deepest parts of his soul, never echoed on earth before or after. And just as Jonah was held in the belly of the fish for his own sins, Jesus was held in the grave for our sins, for our deeds. And as God commanded Jonah to be vomited back out onto the land on the third day, so Jesus was raised on the third day. Only Jesus now is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so salvation is of the Lord. It's completely of the Lord. Many of you have come to church this morning beaten up by sin. Maybe you feel like you're in constant failure. Maybe you feel like God doesn't love you, or maybe your heart has become so hard that you just feel hopeless that you feel that you must be a lost cause. God is sovereign anyway, so what's the point of me responding back to him? Consider the words of Thomas Watson, who once said, quote, either sin must drown or the soul must burn. Let it not be said that repentance is difficult. Things that are excellent deserve labor. Will a man not dig for gold in the ore, even though it makes him sweat? It is better to go with difficulty to heaven than with ease to hell, end quote. So sinner, you can show all of these habits outwardly, but none of it will matter unless your heart has changed. And your heart will not change if you approach repentance with a flippant attitude, with a routine attitude. 
Repentant people pray to God. So pray, because if you come in the name of Jesus Christ, you can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Repentant people treasure the word of God. So treasure scripture, because in them, you will find that he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Repentant people acknowledge their separation from God. So acknowledge it because God raised Christ Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. He takes us from this position and raises us to his glory without our works, without our own desire, gives us the record, gives us the faith, gives us everything that we need to be reconciled to him. Consider, think about what a mercy it is that he would even let us know about his glory. But then he takes it even further through his mercy that he would bring us into this glory with him. Repentant people accuse themselves before God. So confess your sins in full. Like Charles Wesley, confess vile and full of sin I am. And then quickly remember that the only power Satan had against us was to accuse us before God with our sins. And remember that through Christ's salvation, Satan has been disarmed. He can no longer accuse us. We can hide in him as our defense. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, Satan, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them, who accuses them day and night before our God. Repentant people see through the perspective of God. So look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Martin Luther once said, quote, God created the world out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. Repentant people give praise to God. Listen, God created you. God created me, knowing that we would fall, but intending to have mercy, intending to send his only son to pay the debt of God's wrath in full. And the work of his son was credited to us who are the guilty. So let go of your sin and surrender. And in surrendering to God, there is praise because of what God has done for the repentant of heart. Repentant people come to God with their sin and say, these idols, these sins, these habits are all I have to offer. I got nothing else. Take them all. I just want you. My reputation, my addictions, my secrets, my sins, my vices, my wants and desires, none of them matter. I'll gladly give them up. I'll thankfully give them up because the kindness and love of God appeared toward men, not by our works of righteousness, but by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, making us heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's not with my authority that I speak to you this morning. It's God's word. God who commanded the fish to swallow Jonah, he commands the fish to spit him out. And when he spat out, a new man has arisen. Jonah thought he was facing down the barrel of the gun, but now he is alive. He is breathing fresh air. He never thought he would again see sunlight, but now he even feels the rays on his face. He has been stirred. He has new life. And the same hope, the same renewal, this new life is for you, for those who repent. Surrender yourself to God.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we worship you this morning because you are glorious, because you are holy, because you are worthy. And God, would you, by sending your spirit to illuminate our hearts, to see your son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he has done and the love of God the Father, would we be made worthy of you? And would you allow our worship to be worthy of you? In your son's name, the only name by which we can come to you to pray and confess our sins. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.